trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University. We're taking on the grand challenges that face our students, graduates, and higher education is our mission and our passion. Hosted by Mason President Gregory Washington, this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, everyone. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington coming to you with another Access to Excellence podcast, where we discuss the grand challenges facing our students, alumni, and higher education. Well, it's almost that time of year, and you know what time of year I'm talking about. For some, Santa Claus is definitely coming to town. In fact, a study by the American Journal of Orthopsychiatry found that 85% of four-year-olds believe in Santa Claus, and even 25% of children eight years old believe. So what happens when children find out that Santa Claus isn't real? My guest today says that discovery will aid in their development and reinforce their social abilities. She has done research that shows that the more children are exposed to live Santas, the more they believe in him. Talia Goldstein is an associate professor of applied developmental psychology, and her research is focused on explaining how engaging in imaginary worlds, role play, and the arts can help children's developing social and emotional skills. She directs Mason's Social Skills, Imagination, and Theater Lab, which researches the effect of pretend play and theater on children's social-emotional skills. And she's co-director of the Mason Arts Research Center, which is part of the National Endowment of the Arts Lab. She also writes a regular column for Psychology Today entitled The Mind on Stage. Dr. Goldstein, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm going to start this with a story. When I was a graduate student, my advisor, he comes into the lab one day, and there's a group of us graduate students, probably about seven, it was a pretty big lab, probably seven, eight of us. We're all engineers, all doing high-tech work. He comes into the lab in September, and he says, I want to write a children's book on how Santa Claus can actually be real and how he can actually deliver all of those toys and gifts to people all over the world. So he said, let's do a roundtable. I want you to highlight every single technology that you think could make Santa Claus delivery of billions of gifts possible. And we did. I mean, we were talking about teleportation and we started just labeling things. And he just sit there and he took notes furiously, right? And he wrote a children's book. That's so great. Every year around Christmas time, it probably still happens to this day, but he would get interviewed by CNN and NBC and all of these different networks on his children's book. And the interesting thing is, you know, we're researchers, right? You write papers, you write books, you do all this kind of stuff. He had more hits <laughs> and more publicity on that children's book than anything he ever done in engineering. It's the value of translational research. <laughs> exactly. So this one is one in which is near and dear to my heart. So I want to thank you, Talia, for being a part of this show and highlighting some of your work. So you didn't come at your research 
from a strictly academic background either. You double majored in theater and psychology at Cornell, and you earned your PhD in developmental psychology from Boston College. But you also spent several years as a professional dancer and actress in New York. That's right. Were you in any productions we might know of? (laughs) I'm in the far background of the movie Mona Lisa Smile. So if you pause it at exactly the right moment and then zoom in about 10 times, you can (laughs) see me dancing in the background. Outstanding, outstanding. Did your time as an actress and a dancer shape your current research? Absolutely. When I graduated from college, I thought to myself, dancers have a pretty short shelf life. Yeah, without Um, question. You can only do it for so long. And so I sort of thought to myself, if I don't go and try and do this now, I will regret it when I'm older. And so I went for a few years, but I really missed being academic and intellectual and having a scholarly life and a life of the mind. So when I decided to go back to get a PhD, in psychology, I looked to any researchers, any departments, any area where I could combine my two great loves of psychology and research on the one hand, and then the arts and creativity on the other hand. And so I was lucky enough to end up in a graduate program where my desire to investigate how theater and the arts affects us and affects our development and affects our psychological and psychosocial social functioning in the real world was encouraged. And so that really started my research program on psychology of the arts and theater and imagination. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly enough to me, at least, as somebody who loved both of these topics, there just wasn't a lot of research that had been done up to that point that combined theater and psychology. And so there was a really wide open field of opportunity for me to ask and answer the questions I was most interested in. Oh, that's Um, really cool. And that's what I continue to do to this day, which is just most fun. I read something about you a few years back in which you said you're still disappointed about finding out that Santa isn't real. What was Christmas like for you growing up? Uh, yes. So I was actually raised half Jewish, half Catholic. Okay. So we had both a menorah and a Christmas tree, Understood. which is a tradition I continue with my son to this day. We, in our house right now, have both a menorah and a Christmas tree. And I found out that Santa wasn't real because I was poking around in a closet in the upstairs of my house when I was about eight or nine years old, which is the average age that kids find out that Santa isn't real. Sorry, spoiler alert. But mm-hmm. And I found a whole set of wrapping paper that was not part of where the other wrapping paper was. And as I started poking around in this closet, I realized this was the wrapping paper that Santa Claus used to wrap our presents every year. <laughs> and what was that wrapping paper doing in the closet? And oh no, this must mean that Santa Claus is actually my mom. And so I went and I Oh, that, you, you, that's a big jump. Yeah. You, it, you, you took a big jump from the wrapping paper to Santa Claus isn't real. That's not a jump that most eight-year-olds would have taken. Well, it's interesting because that's actually what motivates a lot of my research around this topic because I don't know whether or not that's a big jump. There's a way in which when you're sort of eight or nine years old, mm-hmm. you start looking around at the world and you start discovering about what could be the methods that you could use to get around the world overnight. And are those methods real or are they just imaginary? No, see, for me, 
it was much more, I guess, much more clandestine than oh. that. So, so I had this habit as a kid. I just couldn't sleep Christmas Eve because you knew that there were going to be toys waiting the next morning. And so what my parents would do is probably around 11 o'clock, they'd start peeping in the room to see if you are asleep or not, right? And every year they would catch me. They'd say, oh, he's awake. And they would leave and they would say, well, look, if you don't go to sleep, Santa's not coming. He, he's not coming. That's a big one. Right? <laughs> and so one day I tricked him. You know, I did my little fake sleep deal and my eyes were not wiggling a little bit. I was really calm. I took in a deep breath and breathed it out. And I fooled him. And I remember hearing my mother say, oh, they're asleep now. So now I can figure out what's happening. So you already had an idea, though, at that point that maybe something wasn't on the up and up. I just didn't know. I'm thinking that I'm going to wake up and see Santa Claus. So I didn't really know what would happen. I just know that you go to sleep, then Santa comes, then you wake up and all the toys are there, right? This time I'm going to see him because I am not sleeping. I hear the rustling happening and I'm like, okay, here it is. It's time. Right? And so I sneak out of the room and I hear my parents down there talking. They're putting stuff together. I can hear them, but I can't see them yet. And the floor must have creaked or something like that. And it was like, what? you hear somebody? And so I rush back in the room. I jump back into bed and then they come upstairs again and they look and they say, how do they sleep? And they, and they come back and they look at me and, yeah, yeah, they're sleeping. And so now I'm just horrified. So I don't go out there, but I know something's not right. And I remember asking my grandmother, I told her what happened. You know, she's an old Southern woman. She was like, boy, no Santa Claus. Your mama and daddy putting that stuff together. Oh, no. Grandma <laughs> so ruined it. Grandma like, got you. Oh, yeah. She told me. Uh, she said, but don't tell them you know. Just act like you don't know. Just mm-hmm. don't tell them. I said, okay. It became our little joke on them, right? Yeah. And so then it was this cat and mouse game until they finally told me. That's such a great story because it's just an example of how kids try to figure out what the world is all about, right? right? You wanted evidence with your own eyes of what was actually happening after you went to sleep. You wanted to be a scientist about it, right? You wanted to use scientific thinking and get observational evidence that Santa Claus was in front of you. And then when something went wrong, you went to a trusted adult and asked that trusted adult to confirm what evidence you were or were not getting. And then she spoiled it for you, but this is what I think is such an interesting thing about Santa, because it's this cultural phenomena that we give to our children, but children start to become curious and skeptical about it after a while. I mean, the ruse is on, the weathermen are a part of it, and they show Santa leaving the North Pole, and oh, and look at Rudolph, his nose is blinking. and The NORAD tracker is amazing. (laughs) Oh my goodness, they had a guy the army is exactly. a part of it. You exactly. know? <laughs> so I get it. It's fun. It's an enduring story, which is so amazing to me. I saw a study that early European childhood education research 
in Finland highlighted that 92.5% of parents said Father Christmas was real for their children through the age of eight. And Mm -hmm. I guess that's another concept of Santa Claus, right? That's their cultural version of Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. So our American Santa Claus in the big red coat and Mm -hmm. with the big uh, white beard and everything is really sort of from the 1940s and 1950s when that became the cultural icon and the cultural image in the U.S. Other countries and around the world, there are various versions of a Father Christmas or a Sinterklaas that will come and bring gifts to the children in the household. And sometimes it's on Christmas, sometimes it's a few days after. Hmm. There's the Reyes Magos as well that will give gifts after Christmas. But the similarity across all cultures is that this is a form of, you can call it play, you can call it pretend, you could call it lying if you wanted Mm -hmm. to go in that direction. But it's a cultural phenomena that we provide to our children that children at some point start to become curious and suspicious of because adults don't believe in Santa Claus. Adults are sort of in on the game. But that transition is such a interesting time for kids to start to figure out what is actually happening in the world around them. Well, I'll tell you, it is definitely a ruse. Yep. (laughs) Absolutely. So you also highlighted in some work you did with Jacqueline Woolley at the University of Texas, where you found that the more Santas a child was exposed to, the more likely they will believe in the real Santa Claus. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So so th- this is the more like they see in malls, exactly. the more they see in books and stories. Is exactly. That, okay. Exactly. So this came from my interest in theater and acting, actually, mm-hmm. which is one of the ways in which children interact with actors most directly is when they go to visit a live Santa Claus. That's an actor who's Mm -hmm. dressed up and is meant to make them believe that he's the same person that comes down their chimney and is going to give them presents in a few weeks. And so we actually went to a museum where children were visiting one of these live Santa Clauses and we talked to the kids. They were between the ages of about 3 and 12. And then we also talked to the parents and we asked them about how often they took their children to see various live Santa Clauses because as you start seeing all over the place right now in December there are Santa Clauses everywhere they're all over the place you can go to Tyson's Mall you can go downtown at the Mosaic they're at firehouses they go to private parties I mean you can interact with a whole bunch of live Santa Clauses over the course of the Christmas season and so what we were curious about was whether that led children to skepticism because wait a minute that Santa Claus had a gray beard but this other one has a white beard and this one is very tall and has a Mm -hmm. pillow under his suit. That one was a little bit shorter and a little bit skinnier. So does this differing evidence sort of change how kids think about Santa Claus or does it actually make them think that who they're seeing is actually the person who comes down the chimney? And that we were super surprised. And what was the answer? We found we found that the children who had been exposed to more and different Santa Clauses actually believed that they were seeing the same person who came down their chimney. Really? Yeah. This was totally against our original hypothesis. The Hmm. data came in totally opposite. But what 
we concluded from looking at those data and then also some of the other questions that we asked was that going to visit these live Santa Clauses was part of these levels of parent promotion of the holiday that were different family by family. But those families that took their kids to see lots of live Santa Clauses also did lots of other belief inducing activities with their children. So these were the parents who were putting carrots out on the front lawn for the reindeer. And these were the parents who were making extra sure and careful that their kids were definitely asleep before they started to put the presents out and who read those stories to kids and Mm -hmm. who showed them the movies about Santa. So it's part of this whole parenting phenomena around giving kids lots of evidence and lots of rituals that Santa is real. And so parents teach their kids about all sorts of things that they can't see, germs and the solar system and dinosaurs. And so why shouldn't kids believe their parents when they say that Santa Claus is this real person who's about to come into their houses? You know, I grew up in New York City. Mm. And growing up in New York City, you didn't have a house with a chimney. So I was always asking questions about that. And they said, no, no, Santa just comes in through the front door. Just (laughs) comes in, you know, he takes the the elevator. No, he takes (laughs) the elevator up. He starts at the top and he just comes down and (laughs) and he goes to all the different apartments. Apartments, and he comes down to the bottom. That's how Santa does it. And it's great because parents really do come up with answers to these questions that are specific to the experience they're having with their kids. I actually, last December and this December, have been running research with a collaborator, Candace Mills, at University of Texas, Dallas, where we're asking parents to report on a daily basis the conversations that they have with their children around Santa Claus. And we're getting all these lovely examples, just like what your parents told you about the ways in which parents adapt what they're telling their kids to make sense for the context that their children are in. The other thing that happened for me growing up in New York is that at a certain age, there were kids who believed in Santa Claus and the other kids just told them, look, man, there is no dang Santa Claus. They, yeah. they were not that nice. Right, right, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> no Santa Claus. Your parents are bringing you those toys. How do most children find out? It's such a good question. It's actually a question we don't have a scientific answer to yet. Really? We, we don't have good data yet on how kids come to disbelieve. We have some theory and a little bit oh, of pilot I think, data I think on it. I think their friends tell them. There's definitely a group of children who get direct discussion from either siblings or friends right. or a grandparent or an aunt or uncle that just directly tell them, listen, there's no Santa Claus. You've been fooled. Sorry. That's too bad. (laughs) Exactly. There are other groups of kids, though, who start to ask questions and gather evidence for themselves, like maybe the wrapping paper in the back of the closet, or they start to see that the handwriting on the card is suspiciously similar to the handwriting from the lunch note that they get from their parent every day. I actually have a colleague here at Mason who was telling me about his children and the tooth fairy, where one morning 
morning, his daughter came down and she had lost a tooth the night before. And she had a note from the tooth fairy that said, thank you so much for the tooth. Here's a dollar. Congratulations on losing teeth and getting older. And she said, hey, dad, can you write me a note that says these words in it? And he went, why? She said, I just want to see something. I want to see if your handwriting and the tooth fairy's handwriting. <laughs> now, my friend had been really smart. He had written it with his left hand. Right. And he had used block lettering instead of script. And so she went, no, no, no. Use your other hand. I want you to try and copy it. So kids are really trying to gather evidence for themselves. And they are really yeah, sort of going after that a, answer. That kid got help. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because the tooth fairy was the other one. And man, we've gone through a lot of inflation because oh, teeth were only a quarter back in my day. <laughs> and it started out as a dime. And, you know, you I were think, happy if you got a quarter. I think I got a silver dollar for the first oh, one. Oh, my and then, goodness. And then after that, it was quarters <laughs> only. Just the, the first one was special. And then after that, it was just a bunch of teeth. Yeah, you know, I hear you. Now, do you have children? I do. I have a nine-year-old son. Oh, well, okay. What'd you do with him? Oh, yeah. So we have gone through the Santa Claus journey. So he believed in Santa Claus because I did all the things to get him to believe in Santa mm-hmm. Claus when he was little. I took him to visit Santa and he got presents from Santa. Now, and now all the time you had already done the research, right? So I started this line of research when he was about nine months old. Okay. So you knew then what oh, you yeah. kind of know now. Absolutely. Okay, go ahead. Keep in fact, going. I have a picture of him sitting on Santa's lap. He's nine months old and he's sitting on the lap of the Santa Claus that we were doing research with. And so I actually brought him to the research site for one day to help with the setup and everything. We used to live in New York City when he was little and the Santa Claus that he used to visit in New York City is actually a friend of mine from my acting days. And so he has dark skin and a gray beard. And so that was the Santa Claus that my son visited when he was two and three and four and five and six years old. And then we moved down here Mm -hmm. and I took him to visit a Santa Claus at a community center in Mm -hmm. Fairfax. I I know where this is going. And he came to me afterwards and he said, what happened to Santa? I went, well, what do you mean? Tell me what you mean about what do you, what's your question? What happened to Santa? He said, Santa's skin got lighter. Santa's beard got lighter. What happened to him? Did he get old? And I sort of said, that is such an interesting question to ask. What do you think happened? He said, I think he got old in the last year. And, and that's why his beard got whiter and he changed a little bit. And I went, okay, buddy, great. And I sort of left it at that and wanted to see where he would go from there. And then last year, he started asking a lot more questions about, well, how does he get around the world and where yeah, do all the Yeah, the other kids got to him. The other kids got to him. How did all of this happen? And so eventually he just point blank said to me, there's no real Santa Claus is there. And I went, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. Good job figuring it out. Like, <laughs> sorry about that. But the best part about it was... Uh-huh. That he has now, because of COVID and because of being home together for the last year and a half, I have been having my meetings about my grants and about my research and about my projects around Santa Claus while I'm at home with him sitting next to me at the dining table. And so he asked me a few months ago, he said, isn't it so interesting that now that I don't believe in Santa Claus anymore, now you're studying how kids don't believe in Santa Claus anymore. And I went, oh, no, hon, I've been studying 
this since you were a little baby. And he actually got more upset about that than he did about the fact that Santa's not real. Yeah, because he recognized that he was part of the study. He went, wait a minute, you've known about this all along? (laughs) You've been keeping it from me? I can't believe this. So that was really funny. So now every time I talk about Santa or he sees that I'm sort of working on this project, he goes, you know, I figured it out. I'm like, yes, you did. Good job. And I'm trying to remember back into my childhood and how I felt when my grandmother told me, Mm -hmm. are kids really disappointed when they find out there isn't a Santa Claus? I think some of it depends on how kids find out, actually. Okay. So I think from our research, we found that the kids who figure it out for themselves, the ones who have been out there setting traps or gathering evidence or using a scientific method in order to figure out what's going on, they're quite proud of themselves. Often kids will talk about, in the interviews that we've done with kids who have recently stopped believing in Santa, they express a sense of pride and a sense of feeling like they're being more grown up. Because they figured it out. Because they figured it out and and they feel sort of smart and proud of themselves and and like they've accomplished something in their own development, which I think is fabulous and really a great, interesting way for self-confidence to come out for these kids. There are definitely a set of kids where if they find out suddenly or if there is a group of people who keep trying to convince them, even though they are very insistent that Santa no longer exists, might get a little angry about it or a little disappointed about it because it's like, wait a minute, tell me what's actually happening. You know, somebody, I want somebody to answer my question directly and it's different than what I was expecting. Has your study touched based on when other kids tell them and how do they feel then when they didn't know but the other kids in the neighborhood knew and and then the other kids say well you should have known and you know. Yeah we don't have a lot of evidence there but we do have some kids who have told us that they felt a little embarrassed at first because Mm -hmm. maybe their peers at the same age knew something that they didn't know and they wanted to be let in on it Right. but then often they say well now I know and my little sister doesn't so I feel adult and grown up in a way that my little sister's still believes. Mm, Interesting. So how does all this play into the idea that the discovery that there isn't a Santa Claus will help with development and reinforce their social skills? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned before, you know, one of the things I'm really interested in with my collaborators is how kids start to get a sense of what's real and what's true and what's not in the world. So this distinction between fiction and reality, fantasy and Mm -hmm. reality. And so one of the things that kids are really learning how to do as they discover Santa Claus is learning how to gather evidence and how to think about whether or not the different pieces of evidence they get around Santa Claus, like he can fly around the world, like he knows when you have been good or bad, like Mm -hmm. he has an idea about where you are at any particular time so he can deliver presents to that location. So one of the things that kids, I think, are gaining as they start to learn about Santa Claus is a chance to practice those kinds kinds of scientific reasoning skills and trying to practice sort of figuring out where and how they can put together 
pieces of evidence. And one piece of that is learning who they can go to to ask questions and learning who to trust and whose testimony about Santa Claus and whose mm-hmm. ideas about Santa Claus to trust. And then from there, I think that part of the way in which children interact with fiction and part of the way in which they think about pretend play is to practice various emotional states and to practice various types of social interaction. And so one of the things that I think happens in pretend play generally is that kids have a chance in a sort of safe and contained space to practice their emotional reactions to various events Mm -hmm. and to practice the way in which they interact with other people socially. So one of the things that we've been seeing in our studies is that kids like to do pretend play around Santa Claus. These are a little bit younger before they've quite come to the age of disbelief. When they're sort of three, four, five years old, Santa Claus gets involved in their pretend play and they pretend and play at and role play receiving presents, opening them, thinking about them, talking about them. And that kind of pretend play and imaginative play and engagement, I think, is associated with social practice and social Mm, skills. Yes, that makes sense. That makes sense. So I've seen people take the other side of this and some in a very, very aggressive way. I remember I do a lot of work in a community and I was doing a Kwanzaa celebration with a whole group of people. And this is back in California. And uh, the speaker, you know, it was a room full of kids and parents. He told everybody that your parents were Santa Claus and they should not be teaching this philosophy mm-hmm. to our kids today. Mm-hmm. Right. Because of this whole issue of trust. And he was really, really forceful with it. And so how can a parent or guardian present the truth about Santa Claus in a constructive way? Yeah, it's such a good question. And in fact, it's a question that I'm actually starting a study on right now, just for this Christmas season. We received a grant to look at parents teaching about honesty and morality and how they're teaching about honesty and morality, how parents think about integrating that with what they tell their children about Santa Claus. (laughs) Interesting. do, Do they even consider what they tell their children about Santa Claus to be lying, to be untruthful? Or do they consider it to be a form of pretend play or imaginative play or magical fun that they're having with their children? So I think that there's definitely a strong voice from a lot of people saying you shouldn't tell your kids that Santa is real at all because it will cause them to not trust you or it will cause them to think, what else is it that you're lying about? Right. Mm -hmm, What mm -hmm. else is it that you're telling me that I can't trust? Right. We've actually found no evidence in any of our research to this point that kids stop trusting their parents because they find out about Santa Claus. We didn't have any children report that they trust their parents less because their parents lied to them about Santa. So I think if any parents are worried about that, they don't really need to be. Even if you are having your child believe in Santa Claus for a very long time, we don't seem to see any negative effects on the parent-child relationship when kids find out that Santa isn't real. Mm -hmm. I do think, though, that presenting Santa Claus as a fun myth or 
or as a way to be playful. Or a lot of parents, after their children find out that Santa isn't real, talk about him as a spirit of giving or a spirit of generosity or a spirit of fun and love and magic around this season. And so I would hypothesize that having that kind of discussion around Santa would help children and parents sort of understand why they were interacting in that way around Santa Claus. But I don't think it's too big of a concern that kids all of a sudden are not going to believe anything their parents are saying anymore. Because No, I hear you. Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit. So does the Santa Claus story and how children are investing in it correlate at all with your research on pretend play? You know, I've heard you say that pretend play in children comes from the worlds in which they live in, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Santa Claus is a really interesting case of play and a really interesting case of imaginary engagement. And that's sort of what got me interested in studying Santa as a psychological phenomena and as a developmental phenomena in the first place Mm -hmm. because of its sort of theatricality and the theatricality around the Christmas season. But I do think that more generally, pretend play is a pretty universal phenomena. Oh, without question. Typically developing kids sort of around the world pretend play. And what's really interesting about it is that kids pretend play the adult actions that they see in their communities. So if your parents are dentists, for example, and you get taken to the dentist and you're three years old, more likely than not, you're going to come home and pretend play dentist after you come home. Hmm. If your parents are spearfishers and they take you when they go spearfishing, there's evidence to suggest that those kids will pretend play spearfishing. And kids whose parents spend time opening coconuts, pretend play opening coconuts. And kids whose parents are lawyers, pretend to go to work and type on a computer. And so pretend play really is the way in which very young children start to make sense of their worlds, whatever those worlds are. You know, one of the great things about human psychology and development is that it is infinitely flexible to the context in which you're born. And one of the ways in which it is infinitely flexible is that children are open to any kind of information that they get from their parents and any kind of activity that they see their parents doing. They want to practice because they see it as important for their own understanding of the world. So the pretend play that kids engage in is pretty closely reflective of the activities that they see in the community around them. Is there any society that you've seen where children don't go through this pretend play framework? There are societies and communities that don't want their children to pretend play and don't want their children to engage in imaginary worlds or imaginary play. So, for example, there was research that Marjorie Taylor and colleagues published in the late 90s on Mennonite communities, Mm -hmm. where those communities really discouraged their children from engaging in pretend play because they thought it took away from religious practice and that imaginary worlds were sort of antithetical to the sort of serious contemplation of the divine that they wanted their children to learn. Those children would go around the back of the church and pretend play anyway. (laughs) So the urge for those kids to engage in play was so strong and so all-encompassing that even though they were discouraged from their parents and discouraged from the rest of the community from doing it, they wanted to do it anyway. So we do know that one of the early possible symptoms of autism and autism spectrum disorders is a lack of pretend play 
play in early childhood. But outside of that kind of atypical development, we see pretend play in basically every culture that's ever been studied. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, this this whole pretend play phenomena kind of follows you as you age, right? It's clear that it's pretend play when they're youngsters, mm-hmm. right? Seven, eight, nine, and the like. But when they become teens, preteen years, you know, I've seen my kids mimicking the kind of thing they see me doing or if they're really into sports mm-hmm. my kids would watch LeBron James do something it could be a basketball move right and they take their basketball goal and bring it way down yeah. so that they can dunk and they would dunk on somebody and do the same exact moves that LeBron James did right mm-hmm. or if there was ever a countdown right we're looking towards the end of the game five four three two they would go out and they would do that yeah right because because they saw it somewhere and they are replicating that. Mm-hmm. I've seen it all the way through high schoolers. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I spent a lot of time around young people mm-hmm. and I've seen it just translate. Social bonding and social learning comes mm-hmm. from imitating each other, right? We sort of find similarities amongst us, and then we do the same thing or engage in the same activity. And that's how we bond with one another. That's how we form social groups. That's why, actually, I think that pretend play and social skills are so closely linked to one another in development, because this kind of play and imitation and learning happens throughout the lifespan. The question of what happens to pretend play as we get older is such an interesting and really understudied one because there's these sort of smaller instances like what you're talking about with watching sort of celebrities or watching sports stars or watching geniuses and really accomplished people and then trying to play at what they're doing and see what elements of what they're doing works for us. There's also more explicit forms of pretend play as we get older. So there's obviously theater and improvisation and those kinds of things. But then there's things like renaissance fairs and cosplay and D&D and video game play and LARPing, all of which are these forms of pretend play that teenagers and young adults engage in Mm -hmm. for a sense of social bond a sense of community, a sense of fun, self-exploration, trying out different versions of yourself and how you can interact with other people as an avatar or as somebody slightly separate from self. So I don't think pretend play ever goes away. I think it just starts to take different forms as we get older and older. Even when we're doing something like watching a TV show or reading a book, we're still engaging in some sense of perspective taking and fictional transportation that is a form of that kind of pretense that we started very, very young in development. Oh, okay. Let's talk a little bit about your work in the social skills, imagination, and theater lab. Great. Right, because this kind of translates directly into that, right? Mm-hmm. So you got the Santa Claus piece, and then, the, then it moves to the pretend play, and now you got social skills, imagination, your theater lab work. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about what's focused there. Yeah, absolutely. So the social skills, imagination, and theater lab is my lab in the applied developmental group in the Department of Psychology, and we have four PhD students and a bunch of master's students 
students and a good number of undergraduates actually doing honors thesis and then also getting research experience as research assistants in our lab group. And what I'm particularly interested in there is my work up to this point has found lots of correlations and associations between engaging in role play and theater activities and higher levels of social skills like empathy, compassion, emotional understanding, and theory of mind, which is this understanding of other people's beliefs, desires, and intentions. And I've been doing this work since I started in graduate school Mm -hmm. way, way back in 2005. And the work has sort of shown over and over again that generally social skills are associated with generally experiences in theater and role play and acting. And so the questions that we're asking now aim to delve a bit deeper into mechanism. And if these associations occur, how is it that they're occurring? What may be the causal pathway through which the behaviors of acting and theater and role play are causing social skill gains in empathy and emotion regulation and theory of mind. So we're approaching this from two directions. The first is that we have kids come into the lab and we have them, well, we used to have kids come into the lab before Mm COVID-19 sort of shut some things down and we're hoping to start bringing kids into the lab again soon. Oh, so you you haven't haven't gotten back to that. We are actually just starting next month. I'm so excited. We wanted to make sure it was safe. Well, obviously, I'm not trying to pat ourselves on the back here. But there are very few environments these kids can walk into. Absolutely. That's a safer environment than this camp. I agree. Without question. I agree. And now that the kids can also get vaccinated, the parents are much more open to bringing them into these new environments, which is fantastic. And it's lovely to be able to assure the parents, like, yes, everybody who your child will interact with will be masked and vaccinated and has gone through all of the testing protocols and everything. We couldn't do the research without it, frankly. Mm -hmm. It just would be impossible. So we're bringing kids into the lab and asking them to portray characters in different ways and engage in pretend play in different ways, sometimes sort of more fully as a character, so fully in costume, running around the lab space, doing different activities, little quests, that sort of thing. Now, is that pretend play or is that dramatic play? You know, the line between those two things is rather porous. Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So I don't necessarily consider those two things to be separate. There are versions of pretend play that don't involve dramatic play that don't involve dressing up in costume and playing a character. And then there are versions of pretend play that do. And I consider it all under that umbrella of pretend play. And then when you're playing a character, when you're embodying a character, that's the role play. That's the dramatic play part of it. And so what we're doing is asking kids, randomly assigning them to either play those dramatic sort of first person characters or just read about them or just think about them. And then we're looking at how that might affect kids' social understanding of other people. (laughs) So how do they think about a character or how do they understand their emotions? The idea being we're trying to get at, is it something about the embodiment, right? The physicalization of the character? Mm -hmm. Or is it something about just reading or thinking about or taking the perspective of the character? So really trying to break down 
down in a lab setting, controlling for lots of other variables. What is it about this kind of pretend play, this kind of dramatic play that may be leading to these higher social skills? You know, it's interesting. I remember growing up and you talk about this dramatic play, but when you're going through this whole pretend cycle and you're either pretending you're a superhero or a bad guy mm-hmm. or an athlete or something like that. I always I had this friend, he couldn't get out of the bit. Oh. Right? So he would start pretending to be somebody and he would just keep on going with it. Even after the, you thought the game was over, yeah. right? He's still in character. And I hate it when he tried to be Bruce Lee, right? He's still Bruce Lee. And so he's swinging kicks. And, and I'm like, dude, we, we stopped this a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, we've moved on to something else now. Like you, <laughs> exactly. you, need to, you need to leave that alone. This is actually something actors talk about all the time, which is how do you get out of character? How do you sort oh, okay. of move back into yourself? Uh-huh. And there's lots of different theories from actors about what is the best way to do this, right? Do you need a moment of meditation? Do you need to move into a different space? Do you need to stop thinking of yourself in one way and purposefully think about yourself in another way? But what's so interesting about your story with your friend is this is one of the ways that pretend play and social skills are really linked with one another because your friend was getting social feedback that this is no longer appropriate, right? Right. We've moved out of this game and so you need to learn how to control yourself in a slightly different way in order to no longer be part of this game and to rejoin the social group. And that's one of the ways in which developing social skills takes time and feedback, right? It's not automatic for us. We need other people Ah, to help us on that developmental pathway. So you were part of a 2020 research paper with the title, Could Acting Training Improve Social Cognition and Emotional Control? Right. And it seems like what you're saying now is just even the whole concept, not just acting, but even learning how to act. The the whole thing of training could enhance social and emotional development. Yeah, absolutely. And so could that training, could these endeavors help students and help people who struggle socially? Right. I'm an engineer by training. And we had this old saying in engineering, how do you tell an engineer from a physicist? Physicist looks down at his shoes when he's talking to you, and the engineer looks at your shoes when he's talking to you, right? Slightly more social. Just, <laughs> slightly, just, just like, by right? a little bit. Yeah. But the issue here is that, so you run into people who have this challenge. Yeah. They're much more comfortable in front of a computer or dealing with a set of equations than they are dealing with individuals. And so I wonder, if having these kinds of mechanisms and this kind of training could actually help those individuals in terms of, you know, communicating in social senses. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the things that I think is so fascinating about theater as a topic of study from a scientific perspective Uh is that theater is sort of endlessly flexible and variable depending on what you'd like it to do. So there are theater programs and training programs out there that use some of the tools and techniques of theater in order to work with engineers or in order to work 
work with doctors or in order to work with autistic children Mm -hmm. to help them learn the skills of empathy and communication. So even something simple, actually, just as you brought up as eye contact, there are exercises in the theater and acting class programs, right? Most programs use exercises that are explicit about making eye contact and communicating through eye contact. Something as simple as a very basic theater exercise is called pass the clap. And what you have to do is you stand in a circle with all of the other people who are in the room, which, by the way, is step number one, right? That you have to do something collaboratively. Science is sometimes an individual endeavor, sometimes a collaborative endeavor, but theater is always a collaborative endeavor. So you have to stand in a circle with a group of people. And then you look at somebody and you have to clap at the same time as them. And in order to make that clap happen at the same time, you have to very closely be paying attention to their body language. And then that person passes the clap to somebody else and they have to make eye contact and move their bodies simultaneously. And the idea behind that exercise is it, number one, builds a form of community, right? You're acting communally in order to make this exercise work. But there's also a more subtle psychological training happening where you have to be paying attention to somebody else's eyes, you have to be paying attention to somebody else's body movement, and then you have to regulate your own body movement and Mm -hmm. your own eye gaze in order to match that other person. And that is like one extremely simple exercise that happens in a theater classroom. If you imagine having to develop a full-blown character that then is in dialogue with another full-blown character, you're just adding levels of social complexity there. So there's evidence to suggest that these kinds of acting training exercises can help doctors gain in empathic responding towards their patients, can help kids with autism learn social communication skills Mm -hmm. in groups of kids. And then also from my own work, I've been looking at how it increases dispositional and baseline levels of emotional control and empathy when kids are involved in these acting classes over the course of a year. Okay, so before we go, let's go back to Christmas to kind of wrap this up. So you explained that the cat's out of the bag with your son, right? (laughs) And he knows the truth about Santa Claus. So now what has your Christmas celebration become? Ah, well, we are lighting the Hanukkah candles and decorating the tree. I don't give presents from Santa anymore. So the presents are just from me. But my son has some younger cousins who still very firmly believe. And so we talk about keeping the magic for them and making sure that when they get all excited about what Santa's going to bring them, he doesn't spoil it, right? I don't want him to spoil I don't want him to be that kid spoiling it for his younger cousins. But we talk about that it's fun to be a giver, right? That it's fun to be somebody who thinks about what another person might want or what another person might find fun for themselves and give that to them and share that with them. And so I actually really appreciate the sort of broadening into this larger idea of being with other people, helping other people and giving to other people as the new way that we look at Christmas in my family. Understood. Understood. What a great conversation as we go into the holiday season. You know, it's interesting. This is such a large place. This institution is huge. And because it's so large, we literally have somebody doing every single thing. It's fabulous. And and actually, 
like two of everything. Mm. Not too long ago, we were talking about Thanksgiving. I had the guy who wrote the book on Thanksgiving mm-hmm. here, and he was talking about the first Thanksgiving. And so now you're talking to us about Christmas. So this is great. This is great. Talia Goldstein, I want to thank you for spending time with us today. Talia is an associate professor of applied developmental psychology, and I want to thank her for her time and for giving us a better understanding of how we develop and socialize. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm Mason President Gregory Washington saying, until next time, happy holiday, happy new year, and stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, go to podcast.gmu.edu for more of Gregory Washington's conversations with the thought leaders, experts, and educators who take on the grand challenges facing our students, graduates, and higher education. That's podcast.gmu.edu.